back to when the last time you received a handwritten letter. Not like a Christmas card letter update, uh, not a college acceptance letter, not even a get well card. When's the last time you got a handwritten letter? And I suspect if it was handwritten, it was likely from someone who thought a lot about you because handwriting is hard and it is time consuming. The last handwritten letter that I've held on to was back in 1998. But actually, the story behind that letter goes back even further, back to 1980. Uh, I was adopted from Japan, and so when my parents and I arrived at SeaTac Airport back in 1980, uh, my first stop was not my new crib and our home. It was off to Seattle Children's Hospital, because upon arriving at SeaTac, uh, it would be determined that I would have leukemia. And so my parents were told that Brian, your son, has 5 to 10% chance to survive. It was months and months of prayer and trusting God uh, for my parents. And ultimately, I'm still around. Okay. No, don't applaud. I mean, unless you want to applaud. Okay, I'm kidding. Of the many people, of the many people who witnessed this journey was my oncologist, Dr. Herzog. He was not a believer, and he would tell my parents he was astonished how I was miraculously healed, how I could be declared cancer-free five years later. So that letter I received back in 1998, it was this letter. It was this letter that was sent to me by Dr. Herzog. He had been following me, and in my senior year, graduating high school, he wrote me a handwritten letter. And among what he writes, he says, Dear Brian, I took care of you as an infant when you had a blood disorder. That disorder spontaneously resolved itself, and you've obviously thrived. Give my regards to your family. Best of luck in the future, Dr. Herzog. You see, there's something about a handwritten letter. You know, postcards make us smile, and Christmas letters keep us updated. Acceptance letters bring us excitement. But there's something about a handwritten letter that connects the author to the reader. And this is true of Paul. We know he's an emotional writer. We don't have to guess. We don't have to read between the lines to know what he's talking about. He writes what he feels and he writes what he means. While he has varied tones, we know that he has the same love and care and devotion for whatever church he's writing to. Even earlier in this letter, he would say, since the day I heard of you, I've not stopped praying for you. And while Paul hasn't met the Colossian believers, it doesn't change his affection, his love, their hope, their faith, or his encouragement of them. Their relationship, it was real. It was solid. In other words, his handwritten letter to them mattered. Every encouragement was valued, and every word he wrote carried weight. So as we continue in this summer series, if you haven't already, head to Colossians 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 24. And in today's passage, Paul's going to hit on a whole bunch of different observations and encouragements. There's a lot to cover in these six verses. So let's dive in. He begins in verse 24 by saying this, Now, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, we know, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, Paul was a sufferer. 
He endured a great amount of hardship in his following of Jesus. In fact, he details some of it when he would write to the Corinthians. He'd say, in part, five times I've received 40 lashes. Three times I've been beaten with rods. I've been pelted with stones. I've been shipwrecked. I've been in danger in rivers and from bandits in the city, in the country, and at sea. I've gone without sleep. I've known hunger. I've known thirst. And yet I am joyful. He would write the same thing to the Philippians. And then you add to this list the fact that he is now the author in prison, and yet he chooses to rejoice in his suffering. This is part of that fine print in following Jesus. You see, following Jesus, you will suffer. Following Jesus, you will suffer. In case you missed last weekend, Pastor Kip spoke on this so well last week about the incomparable unrelenting Jesus grip, a grip that holds us so tight and especially so in the midst of our suffering. And it's because of that grip that we can endure suffering and in it, we can discover a blessing and growth and yes, even the ability for joy. And while it might not always be clear, there is a purpose in the pain. There's a purpose in our pain. Last weekend, following the 11 o'clock service, I got an email from one of our online attenders, and this is what she wrote. Pastor Kip's sermon was exactly what I did and didn't want to hear. I didn't want to hear that I have a lifetime of suffering in store, but I sure needed to hear that in that suffering, Jesus has me in his grip. Every step of the way, every turn and twist, and every moment. When I feel lost, when I feel alone, when I feel like I'm at the rock bottom in my life and circumstances, there's hope, there's light, there's someone who understands the depths of my suffering, and it's Jesus. Please thank Kip for the message that I didn't want to, but needed to hear. And I get it. It's easier preached than lived out. So really, it begins with our heart perspective. Do we believe it to be true? Do we believe that there is possibility of blessing in suffering and joy in suffering? I mean, there is a why behind the what. Look to Romans uh, 5, 3 through 5. We rejoice in our suffering, knowing what? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance, character, character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I love the progression, suffering to endurance, endurance to character, character to hope, and hope that is only possible through God and the Holy Spirit. By the way, put a pin in that. We'll come back to it. Sam Storms will say it this way. Joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering. It is the presence of God. In other words, joy and suffering are not mutually exclusive. It is possible for them to coexist. It's why David Blunt would say this, in a season of suffering, don't question God, trust him. Again, if you missed last weekend, I greatly encourage you to check out Pastor Kip's message. You'll find it on our website or the app. All right, suffering is not the point of the passage, so let's move on. He says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, 
and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. And if you're thinking, uh, fill up on my what for the sake of what, you are not alone. Let's be really clear. Paul is not saying that Christ's death on the cross was insufficient. He is not saying that our suffering is necessary to add to what Christ did to pay for our sins. He's not saying that there's a predetermined amount of suffering that we must do in order to fill up. Instead, it's important to know that yes, we will suffer. It's unavoidable in our following of Jesus, in our bringing the gospel to the world. When he says afflictions here in the context, he's speaking to trials and valleys and challenges in this life. And since the church is Christ's body, he's affected when we're affected. For the sake of Christ's body, Paul willingly suffered. And if you look at the totality of all of his writing, this is not a one-off. He's not trying to pull the rug from underneath us. He's saying and has said, through the cross, Jesus reconciled us to himself. We've already been rescued. We've already been redeemed. In fact, in the next chapter, he will say, in him, you have been made complete. In him, you've been made complete. Jesus himself would say just before he died, three incredible words, it is finished. Christ's suffering and sacrifice on the cross was wholly complete and sufficient for the salvation of all who trust in him, period. Paul will continue. And what he's about to do is share what I wrote down as a ministerial mission. This idea, this 30,000 foot level idea for the church then and the church Today, he says this, I have become its servant, or your version might say its minister, by the commission God gave me to present you the world to the word, sorry, to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Here, Paul's referencing his own story. So when he says, has become a servant or minister, he's referencing how his life had a major transformation his calling through a transformation. We can read on our own in Acts 9, this Jesus proclaiming gospel preaching Paul was once a Jesus-hating, Christian-persecuting Saul. And only through God's divine calling was he commissioned as a minister or a servant. And again, servant here in the context is one who would execute the commands of another, which is exactly what Paul thought of himself and was calling others to do as well. Paul considered himself a servant of the church, a servant of Jesus, a servant of the gospel. Now, maybe you're thinking, wow, I am so glad the Lord has not called me into ministry. I will leave that to Bob and Kip and you Well, I got news for you. There is more fine print. You see, following Jesus means you're a minister. You're a minister. Now, I would offer most times when people hear minister, they think pastor. And when you hear pastor, you think preacher. We sometimes think minister only applies to those who work full-time in a church working vocationally. But because all of Christ's followers are called to be like Christ, who came to earth to be a servant, 
then all Christians are therefore servants, and therefore all Christians are therefore ministers. So if you follow Jesus, consider yourself in ministry. Dwight Edwards would say this, we are all in full-time Christian service. We all have the same vocation, to be lovers and servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. No dichotomy exists between ministry and lifestyle. In other words, you are a minister right where you are. But, but Pastor Brian, I'm not a pastor. Okay, but you're a minister. Yeah, but I didn't go to seminary. No problem. You are a minister. But I don't have scripture memorized. Okay, great. You're a minister. You know what? I'm super new to the faith. Well, welcome to ministry. If you follow Jesus, you're called to minister on his behalf. Now, how you minister will be different. It will vary because we are not all gifted the same. You know, a little known fact about me is as a kid, I used to be a bit of a drum player. It's not a big deal. I remember in elementary school and in middle school, I loved the idea of, of being in percussion and, and playing in the band and specifically learning uh, the drum. And I remember joining our, our band and, and being in the back and holding the beat and, and moving up uh, in the ranks. And I remember practicing in our garage. My parents would get me uh, drums and so I'd, I'd play in the garage, everything from like drum rolls to, to playing songs. I just wanted to practice and play all the time, you know, and the result, well, actually, I, I, come on, come on, real quick, here we go, all right, I mean, I, I this is the thing, I, it's, first, it's been a bit, it's been a while, this is a much bigger drum set than I remember, um, but anyway, here's the thing, okay, stop, so here's the thing, I remember practicing and playing because I wanted to get Better, and then I got better. I got, well, I'll just do something for you. Here we go. Okay, right. <clears throat> oh, okay. All right. Hold it together. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Hang on. Hang on. Whoa. I should, don't clap for that. I should mention I was the second best drummer on our band, but there were only two drummers. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. Also in middle school, I ran track. I ran short distance track. At the, at the beginning of one of our seasons, our coach said to me, Brian, I want you to try the high jump. There is no punchline for that. You can just enjoy it. The truth is... Not all of us are called to be drummers, clearly. Not all of us are called to be high jumpers. The point is we are all, though, called to be ministers of the gospel. How we accomplish that will be different. Same team, same goal, different execution. My oldest daughter, Alyssa, she plays volleyball club in high school. It's so fun to watch. And oftentimes the one that gets the point gets the glory, but that point is only accomplished if the rest of the team is doing their work. The same is true here. We are all in this together. Every ministry of the church, every minister of the gospel is incumbent 
on all of us doing our part, serving in our fitting, in our gifting to make God known. Yes, it is true. Some of us are gifted to teach and preach. Some of us are gifted to minister through hospitality. Others are gifted to minister through encouragement or discernment or children's ministry, or youth ministry, or service, or mission work. The bottom line is, whatever your spiritual gifting is, and the time and the resource God has gifted you and entrusted to you, use that to minister. First Peter 4.10 would say, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Each of us has been gifted by God, and has been gifted in stewardship from God. So consider, do you know your gifting? Are you using your gifting to serve others, to serve the church, to to introduce people to Jesus? And how is your perspective? We know how Paul felt. Paul would say this, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Now, admittedly, Paul has set the bar high, but that bar is not out of reach. It's a perspective shift to see that our service is a blessing, it's not a burden. Our opportunity to serve is just that, an opportunity, not an obligation, You don't have to preach on this stage to make kingdom impact. You don't have to be a full-time pastor in ministry to minister. Every Christian is a servant of Jesus. Every Christian is a minister for Jesus. Every Christian is a steward for Christ. A steward, someone who is entrusted with something of value belonging to someone else. Your financial advisor, they are a steward of your money. That money is not theirs. You've entrusted it to them for their stewardship for a time. Parents, parents in the room, we are stewards of our kids. We love them. We clothe them. We feed them. We pay for them. But they are not ours. God has entrusted them to us for a time. Paul was counted as a steward in God's economy, and Paul is telling you, church, in 2022, you are counted the same. So in this case, we are stewards of what? Well, Paul tells us we've been called to minister or steward the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, Pastor Bob's going to deep dive into this next week. So let me just say a couple of things. When Paul mentions this mystery, it's not that they couldn't understand it or comprehend it, because the hope of salvation and how God was going to fulfill the promise that previous generations had been told about was hidden until right now. And what was it? It was the gospel, this hope, the salvation that was completed through Jesus and now available to everyone, Jews and Gentiles. No longer were Gentiles second-class citizens. And interestingly and notably, 
It was Saul previously at the forefront of perpetuating this discrimination, this division. And now as Paul, he's proclaiming and celebrating the good news for all, everyone. This glorious, hope-filled truth of Christ in you via the Holy Spirit dwelling and working and leading believers. Christ is all and in all. He promises that his spirit will be with and powerfully work within struggling believers. He basically promises himself. But again, Pastor Bob has more on that next weekend. Paul continues in verse 28. He says, he is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. As Paul often will do, he offers a what and a why. The what. Paul explains our proclamation of Jesus is both for warning and teaching. In other words, it's really good to proclaim truth. It's also necessary to warn God's people against the works of Satan, sin, and because we default to sin in our natural state, and because God is consistently and completely good, this creates this imbalance that will never balance out in our favor. Therefore, we deserve, as you know, eternal punishment. That's the bad news, the bad news that precedes the good news. And the good news is just that, the good news of the gospel, that God thought so much of you, despite everything you bring to the table and the sin that entangles you, he loved and saw you and thought of you that he sent his son to die for you and to cover your sin. And we're called to share and teach that good news with anyone and everyone that will hear it. To love people in our lives enough to not leave them where we find them. But I'll offer you this, how we proclaim that news matters. How we proclaim is important. I mean, go to any major league sporting event or, or stadium uh, concert and you will likely see and hear an example, in my estimation, of a poor proclamation of the gospel. Often it is someone holding a tall banner or sign with some or sometimes a lot of scripture they're on a megaphone and they are screaming about the urgency for those passing by to repent of their sins and turn to Jesus. Now, do not get me wrong. Do not mishear me. I understand the heart behind their evangelism. In fact, they may argue that they are living out, verse 28, proclaiming, admonishing, and teaching everyone about him. But I would offer how we share matters. Delivery matters, timing matters, relationship matters. Yes, there is an urgency to our message, but how matters. And if we look to our example, Jesus was the master. He could blend ministry and message with an awareness of his surrounding and timing. It is why neighbor to neighbor is a fantastic launching point for us to earn the right to have a conversation about Jesus to minister to our friends and our families and our neighbor. But Paul doesn't stop there. He gives us the why. The aim of Paul's proclamation is the same aim of our Christian life, and it is maturity. Paul's goal is that every person would know Christ 
and would continue growing towards a maturity in him. Therefore, following Jesus means you're called to maturity. You are called to maturity. Now avoid elbowing the person next to you. That's a whole different sermon. But Paul was far more than just about preaching for fun or making converts. He wanted to make mature disciples who would ultimately become complete in Christ. When I start a a small group or or a a, a men's group or a one-on-one relationship, I love to look to Hebrews 6, 1. It says this, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward into maturity. Let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward into maturity. You see, maturity calls us to action. Maturity requires movement. Nobody really wants to stay stagnant. No one wants to remain in place. And if we're being honest, at our core, good enough really isn't. A gamer wants to level up. A runner wants to race faster. A rookie wants to make the big leagues. Imagine being a high school senior and being taught sixth grade lessons. Following Jesus is the exact same. Paul reminding us the goal or the aim of our life as a Christian is to always be maturing, always be learning, always be listening, always be growing in our faith. Let us never think that we have arrived, that our knowledge of God has capped out. So how is it that we keep on maturing? Well, I think first we have to realize it's about progression not a program. It's about consistent movement. We mature in Christ by keeping him at the center of our life and what we do. We use him as our filter. We use him as our grid. And we keep learning. We keep reading. We keep gathering with fellow believers. We pray. We connect. We share. We're transparent. We ask the tough questions that we're not sure that we can ask. We show up on the weekend. We join a small group. We take a step of faith in baptism. We find ourselves in a quad or a one-on-one discipleship relationship. And all along the way, we proclaim about the God who spurs us on and is the reason for it all. And if this sounds like a lot of work, Paul thought so too. He would say this in verse 29. He'd say, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Developing maturity then of these believers took a lot of work. And I would offer it still work today. But verse 29 shows us that each of us must work to present each other mature in Christ. And there's this great tension in this verse. We should give everything that we have to the ministry of Christ. And and how? Whose energy do we use? We use all the energy of Christ. It's the difference between working from the favor of God and working for the favor of God. We can be grateful that we do not have to work for God's favor. We were chosen. We are enough. We are loved. Instead, we work from God's favor. He provides through the Holy Spirit, the words, 
the inspiration, the people, the moments, those quick interactions, the strength, the courage, the boldness in order to minister to others. It is God through you. You know, as mentioned earlier, Paul expresses passion in his letters. And he writes with a great intentionality. Nothing is random. Paul is not aimless and he is not spontaneous. Everything Paul writes in his handwritten letters was intentional. It all connects. And as I was studying for this passage, I came upon an observation from John Piper and I love it. I wanna share it with you. A bit of a roadmap that connects these six verses. And he connected them backwards. He offers, in verse 29, Paul says there's a purpose for which he labors. In verse 28, he says it's the who. Paul describes the purpose that Paul labors is in order to present or proclaim to everyone and bringing everyone to maturity. Verse before, 26 and 27, he reveals the what? The mystery, the good news that Christ is in you for all of you. In verse 25, he talks about the calling, that stewardship to spread God's word. And then based on all of that, with all of that in mind, yeah, I'm willing to suffer. Based on all this that's going to happen, yeah, I'm willing to suffer for that. Paul provides the reason for that opening that now I rejoice in my suffering because of what God's going to do next. Pretty cool. So what's our challenge? I think it's this, to show up, to speak up, and to grow up. First is to show up. It's to accept the reality, the hard reality, that life is difficult. For both Christians and non-Christians, there will be suffering. The difference is, for those of us that follow Jesus, we can show up in the struggle with this incredible assurance a peace, a finality that Christ has it all together. It does not make the struggle any easier, but when we show up with this mindset, it makes the struggle more tolerable. Remember, Christ chose suffering. It didn't just happen, and now he calls you to do the same. He calls you to take up your cross and follow him through the peaks and the valleys. I think the challenge also is to speak up. You know, TSA tells us if you see something, say something. So think about it. Who in your life needs to hear about Jesus? Who in your circle of influence needs to hear about the life-changing, life-altering truth about the gospel? And once you identify the who, speak up, minister to them in the way that God has gifted you. Stay in your lane. Don't be a drummer when he's called you and gifted you in some other meaningful way. But make sure you look around, find out who it is, because I guarantee there's one or two or three or more that even right now, this summer, need to hear about Jesus. Speak up. And then finally, it's grow up. Unlike when we grow up physically, which just happens on its own, growing up in maturity is a choice. Elise Fitzpatrick would say this, maturity in a Christian life is measured only by one test. How much closer to Christ's character have I become? And so as we consider the example of Paul, we got to recognize that we've been given this same stewardship and calling. We're called to proclaim 
Christ and help others to grow in maturity of him. Grow up, keep learning, keep showing up, keep asking the questions, keep praying, keep journaling, keep singing, keep worshiping. Church, we are in this together. We are. So may we be faithful as stewards of this mystery of Christ, that we may present and proclaim to everyone that will hear it as they and we mature in Christ in this incredible faith journey with Jesus.